All right, that is an oldie but a goodie theme right there. Yeah, you know, you, you know, it's a new day. We understand we're going to go back in time here with the Washington Redskins, some of the legends, Joe Jacoby's 40th, 40th anniversary when he first came to the league, sitting in studio all the way from Charlotte. We're going to have some fun today. Here's Rigo. Thank you, Todd. Joe, welcome. Good to see you again. Uh, yeah, actually, I thought that was uh, uh, Hendrick's rendition of the, the, the Star Spangled Banner. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you get the. I was. You, you I ready? need the words. I need the words, but of course, a little lighter fluid and yeah, some. Maybe some. I never saw that part of it. I never saw a Jimi Hendrix concert. Did you, Jeff? No, I never. Was did. he dead by the time you were born? No, not quite. You remember him? Oh yeah, you do. I oh, okay. Yeah, I never. No, I, I. I never saw him really. At, what he used to play the guitar with his teeth, didn't he? He did stuff like that. His tongue, whatever it took, man. Whatever it took. Jimmy got it done. Depend, depending on if he got the good shit in that day or the good stuff, and what he was always lit up for every concert. Why not? Why not? Different time. Uh, well, you know what? I had an interview. By the way, I'm fresh back from. I might peel like a, a snake. You know, might shed my skin because I got a little too much sun down in San Jose, Mexico, which is basically Cabo. Uh, I went down there for a wedding over the weekend. And I hit the dance floor, and, uh, and the first, first song I danced to was, was uh, Pitbull. Uh, oh, that's What's, what's his uh, signature song? Oh, gosh, he has a couple. Cause he's Fire. The, fireball. 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 And Fireball, if that don't get you going, you ain't going to get going. Yeah. One of my favorite songs, actually, and to dance to. But guess what, guys? My dancing days are over. <laughs> After that, and then they played another song, and maybe in the middle of the third song, I was over icing my knees. <laughs> It was awful. We're gonna have some oxygen. <laughs> it was over awful. There. Oxygen. <laughs> I learned all about that, and which I always knew, the, that oxygen that you're taking in does you absolutely no good. I remember, I used to sit on the sideline, but but the only thing somebody asked me about it, well, but it, they they ran it through ice, so it was cold air. So when you you know on a hot hot day, although I remember I used to do it during the winter time too. <laughs> But that was indoors, I think. Super I smart. Remember. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I'm kind of p- p- patching myself back together. Did a bunch of work yesterday. Was so exhausted I could not join you gentlemen last night for dinner. Seriously, I was like hands and knees up the steps to go, go to bed. We saw the pictures of how many bags of mulch Only ago? Well, there's 65 on the truck, but I only dumped about half of them yesterday. I, it's, it's a- Late in the afternoon. It was nice and hot, but I was in the shade. But I gotta tell you, it just—I mean, I had to step up into the back of the truck and the knees and all that stuff, and it wasn't a good—it wasn't a good picture. But we, I want to shift my shift our attention here abruptly to the Olympics. I happened to watch last night the Olympics. I—I—I I, I knew they were going on, but somehow sporting events just kind of come and go with me. I don't really pay much attention to it for whatever reason. And so I thought, well, what the hell? I'm going to turn it on. Surely there's something on. And they had a show that led up to when they actually start showing the actual events, which was basically kind of a cornucopia of what's been going on and mm-hmm. different odd stories about the Olympics. Um, but anyway, so I'm watching, and uh, I watched synchronized diving, men's. I don't know if there's women's. There is, absolutely. There, there's women's synchronized diving. Or is that like synchronized swimming? You getting that confused with synchronized swimming? No, I believe they have for the females as well. But, okay, you know. it's possible. So synchronized diving, swimming. I watched the 800 freestyle meter, 800 meter freestyle. Katie, men's. Katie Ledecky was. She won the 1500 uh, meters. <laughs> yeah, uh, and then um, and then I watched uh, what was it? Uh, the gymnastics. And that's the only three I remember. There might have been another one, but the fog was starting to set in. So. <laughs> I'm not 100% sure after that. Mulch. I couldn't see. Mulch. I couldn't see. Exactly. Well, there was more fog than just mulch. Uh, anyway, I'll tell you what dawned on me last night, and it, it really hit home with me. 
that at least for me, Sean Riggins and my <laughs> and my my time, my history as an athlete. You know, I always kid and tease and joke about being, you know, Jack Champ, who does everything right, and Joe, Joe Chump, Chump, who does most everything wrong. But in the end, Jack Champ beats Joe Chump by about this much in 100 meters, okay? You know, maybe a foot. And that's only because Joe Chump throws his head back because it's a much more... You know, much more flourishing finish for the crowd to the crowd than <laughs> lean into the tape. That's the only way Jack Champ can beat Joe Chump. Joe Chump has done everything wrong. He doesn't warm up. He's over there drinking soft drinks. He doesn't even get in the blocks. Yeah, he might even be smoking a cigarette. I have no idea. <laughs> Jack Champ, he's over there stretching and getting all ready. They run the race. So, anyway, as I watch this, it dawned on me just what I am, Joe Chump. <laughs> and I think most football players, I don't want to take anything away from you, Joe, because I'm curious to get your opinion. But when I think of the amount of work and effort that it goes into making the Olympic team and or some of these sports, now not all of the sports, but gymnastics comes to mind, which I don't watch. Gym, you know, I'm not a big gymnastics guy, but at the same time I have right. tremendous respect for the work and the dedication that these athletes have to put in. I don't know the numbers for sure, but the training, I think we're looking at at least four to eight hours a day for I don't know how long. I, I, I didn't re really research this, but the stuff that they do, it, it it's boggles my imagination. To swim 1,500 meters, that's a mile. To swim a mile like that? And you know a little bit about that, Joe, because you right. had two daughters that were excellent swimmers. Uh, it's true. and I, Borderline <laughs> Olympic type. Borderline, play. yeah, and, and going through that, I mean, you're talking about that. I have memories of, you know, taking them to practice. Exactly. Stuff. What, and, zero and, four hundred? Yeah, yeah, great hours of the day. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Why do they uh, have to swim at zero four hundred? I don't know. Uh, but my oldest, I mean, she would swim nine times a week, practice nine times a week in the water. Minimum two hours at the time. Minimum Each two per, hours per per, per practice, and the exhaustion that they uh, have to go and through, and they do different drills and stuff like that. And she was driven to that, and this, this with an individual, and see her now to what she was then. I mean, she would log every one of her practice. Yeah, and and I think that's how most most of these athletes that play or do these individual sports like that they have to do that their their mind and their focus on that i mean i mean they're out there and unless you're playing doubles of tennis i mean you're you're a single individual who are you competing against? I mean, it's a lot different than a team sport. You're competing with yourself and, and to get better. And that's that's the way they're taught, to be better than you were yesterday. Beat the t best time you've done till that point. And then the next day, it's beat that time you just set yesterday. So. I'm curious. Did you, did, how did your girls come about wanting to be swimmers? How? Was there any influence from you or your no. wife or anybody? Well, was there a swimmer in the family? My wife, she swam in high school and stuff. Okay, so there was a swimmer in the family. There was. She did some, uh, you know, I, I think in the, she got him into that. One, two, for safety reasons to learn how to swim and stuff. So we did all that stuff when they were younger, you know, two, three years old. Right. And they and the oldest took off with it. And, and they loved it. And she did. The youngest, just, she got kind of, you know, Swept fun in that, that semi-truck you got with the wind draft. She was drafted into it. And she wasn't really sold on it, but then she became sold on it as the years went by. And she ended up doing very well herself in the events that she did. 
Yeah, see, that's what that, that's where my curiosity lies. I, I'll, I'll be frank with you guys. I didn't. I don't. You know, like I tell people, I'm not lazy. I'm just not ambitious. There is a difference. Maybe I don't know. Maybe I'm just a cute way of saying I'm lazy. Because <laughs> I can't imagine really putting in that kind of time and that kind of effort. My older brother. He loved sports, and he would practice basketball, you know, at home. We had a basketball, cold weather and all that. He'd be out there shooting baskets and stuff. I'd be in watching Huckleberry Hound. You know, it was like, eh. Occasionally I would go out there. But I just, to me, it boggles my imagination to think how much they, you know, the, the training and how much work they put in, and, and most of all, perhaps, how much pain they experience to get to that level. It's, you know, there's a certain bit of masochism in it, for my take, I, I'm out there for the good time. I'm out there to have fun, and you know, at that point when it ceases being fun, which is anytime practice is involved, I'm with uh, I, uh, Iverson on this one. Alan, I hear you. Of course, you were talking, <laughs> talking about, about the same practice. Practice, <laughs> not a game. Well, he was talking to me when he said that. I said, "Yes, you and me, brother, we got something in common." But then again, you know, you never realize your full potential. Which you know, my point was, I'm thinking to be a running back. Uh, is really probably, for my take on it, is probably the one thing of all sports out there that you can get get a lot of attention. You used to be able to. Nowadays, no. Running backs are you know at the end of the food or down at the bottom of the food chain now. But you know you could generate a lot of attention by being a running back or whatever and build your brand up somewhat. But it required very little work when you think about it. Because really what a running back does is, you know, you're reading off everything that's going on, and that's, I don't know how you practice that. I mean, there's nothing like, I mean, when we practice, I got to thinking, well, I guess you got to know where you're going to get the football, you know, when Joe would hand the ball off to you one way or the other, and that kind of stuff. But the actual what you do once you get the ball and you have to perform, it's different every time. I don't know. I mean, I always thought about, well, I guess you could run out and have a bunch of dummies set out there and run out and fake out all the dummies and do all it, which I never bothered doing. I, you know, you'd have to talk to people like Emmett Smith and Jim Brown, what what their take on it was. But, you know, the funky honky was like, eh. It, less <laughs> you know, is more. Less is more. more the diesel, and let's mm-hmm. take the shortest path from A to B. And if that yeah. guy happens to be way going around, let's see if I can go through. No, just try to go through the edge. You can always, you know, you don't have to go straight line. You can veer just a little bit out of that line. More the glancing. Yeah. But, yeah, I was totally amazed, at, at, like I said, at, at thinking about how much work that goes into getting to that level of accomplishment. And to see, even like those synchronized divers, which, you know, I, how many dives did they make before they got there in the last uh, four years? You know, story, I mean, thinking about all this, we talked about that. And... The girls were very fortunate enough to swim and practice with some of the Olympians. And one that was famous here in this area was Tom Dolan. And now, and Tom would practice, and then Tom would do 20,000 yards of practice. He swam 20,000 yards? 20,000 yards of practice. That's short course. And then they switched to long course, which was the 50-meter pool. And then it would be 20,000 meters, which is more. And he had it broken down and doing an individual medley set. So he would start out and do butterfly. He would do, I, I think, four, 400 there. And then do 400 back, 400 breath, 400 free, and start over again. And that was his practice, just perfecting and building up the strength and the endurance to do the race that he was doing. Three. He's swimming like... Somewhere close to 10 miles. Yeah. 10 
miles. In an Ironman competition, you swim a little bit less than two miles, right? It's not over two yeah, miles. Something like running. that. And, about then, two and then you bike for 110 or something, and, and you, you run, run a marathon. marathon. The shortest part of a marathon, or the I try. mean, of, of the, of the uh, Ironman, is the swimming. The swim, yeah. But, of course, you can swim through, as we've learned from uh, one of our friends, you can swim through, you know, when they put you in the ocean, you never know there might be a man of war out there or, <laughs> or it's jellyfish or whatever. Like Jaws. God forbid. Jaws. Of course, it could help your time if you had a great white shark out there. I don't know. If you lived to tell the tale, you'd probably have a pretty good time. But then, it, so now we roll into probably, I guess, I don't know what, I don't know exactly where to go with this in a way because Simone Biles, who's is, I guess, at this point, most people are crediting her with being the greatest gymnast women's gymnast of all time i always get a i, I think that a, i think that's without a doubt based on her her metal performances right. and some of the revolutionary moves that she has invented and created yeah well whether that's here here or there is the the point that she bowed out after she did a, i think one exercise before the actual event i think wasn't it she she she, she was having a bad warm-up and then she did one vault Oh, that's what she did one vault in competition. in competition, and it was supposed to be a two-and-a-half somersault. She, it ended up being a one-and-a-half, right. and she was that far off. And in her mind, she said, I don't have it today. I, yeah. I can't do this. Right. Well, you know, I looked at that, and I kind of thought, I thought back to my playing days, and I'll remember that, that second year, wasn't the second year, when I say it was like during the Gibbs regime, but it was actually the, my penultimate year that I played, and that was when I hurt my back. And that was there was a time there where I was in so much pain in the morning it would take me. I remember this one specific morning I got up to go to the bathroom, and the bathroom from where I was was probably what, maybe less than five yards away, three, four or five yards. But to get up and go to the bathroom, it was in such pain, it was such agony to get there that actually it crossed my mind. Now this is my narcissism kicking. It crossed my mind. That I'm thinking, what am I doing? I'm, you know, playing football. It was during the fall, you know, during the, during the season, right. and I was ready to bag it. I really thought about, you know, I can't do this anymore. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to quit. I'm gonna have to retire, basically. But obviously, I never did, and I played that year, and then I played the next year. But it did. But but the, the part of me that I, I guess it felt like I felt like at that point that you that you, the fans would be so disappointed. That's the narcissism kicking sure. in that you're thinking you can't let the fans down. So I played on. And I, I, at times in my career, went back to my father once upon a time when I thought about getting out of football. It was the same feeling. I felt like I was going to let him down and my mom down. So I, I kept on. It wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do. So a lot of people have criticized, I think, Simone Biles for her decision that she didn't know this before they you know, before the games, and then she took the spot of somebody that would compete or whatever. But I got to tell you something what I learned in, in, in sports. And it's something that actually, that I'll give you a, a, a little story out of The Sea Wolf by Jack London. There's an instance in there where a character by the name of Wolf Larson, who has basically taken uh, Humphrey Van Weeden, who is who was a guy that fell in the San Francisco Bay, and they scoop him up, and instead of returning him, Wolf Larson is pretty much a, a, a renegade. But he is a bad, bad, bad dude. I mean, he's not only that, but he's 
He's like Lex Luthor. He's a genius. He's a criminal genius on top of having some attitude. Using his powers for evil? Yes, so much. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And so anyway, he gets he gets Shanghai and they take him out and all that. So finally through the end of this, and then there's this uh, there's this woman, Maud, that you know, that they kind of get sweet on into her and Humphrey, but you know, Wolf is kind of watching all that stuff. Somehow she ends up on the ship. And anyway, they escape from Wolf Larsen, but Wolf Larsen has this debilitating disease, and it's where he's, he, he completely, his mind is still sharp, but it's almost like ALS to where his body is starting to, you know, is starting to fail him. And, and he'll have moments where he, he's just completely immo- immobile, he can't do anything, but his mind is still working just as evilly as it ever had, you know, he's got, he's a bad dude, he's got bad thoughts on his mind. So they come to this point where it's actually, he finally starts, you know, he's there and he's going to kill these two protagonists. You know, that's definitely what his mind is set up to do here. But he gets real weak and he can't, you know, all of a sudden he kind of goes into a coma, whatever he does, although he can hear and all that stuff. Now they have, Humphrey Van Weeden was no match for Wolf Larson physically or even intellectually. But so here you have an opportunity. You know this guy's going to kill you, but because of convention and what you've been taught, he won't kill Wolf Larson. He can't bring himself to kill this helpless man, which who I has bad you, intentions. Okay, I'll just go around the c- panel here. Which way would you go on that, Todd? <laughs> you kill him, right? He's going Wolf's down. dead. Wolf's he's dead. Go, he's going Joe, down. Joe Wolf's dead, he's right? Look for that advantage. <laughs> yeah, I guess we weren't. You know, we didn't. We didn't. We're not up with the aristocracy. <laughs> no, no. It's like I, I'm taking care of number I one. Know who you are? Well, he doesn't. Somehow it works out, and they get away. And you know, obviously, he lives to tell the tale. The point here being is that peer group pressure, peer group pressure in my mind, drives a lot of people. And this is where it really takes a lot, it takes much more courage, I think, to go against peer group pressure and do what you think is best for you. And it all gets down to this. And that's why, on the one hand, there's a lot of people disappointed in Simone Biles for her decision that she made. But you have to appreciate the courage, not only the courage it took for all that training, that's more dedication, but the courage it, ta- it took to invent some of these moves that if you're just a hair off, if your mind isn't there, you, catastrophe could quickly ensue, whether it right. be paralysis, oh, yeah. and there's plenty of gymnasts have been paralyzed, or death even, you could easily fall, hit your head the wrong way, and end up dying right there on the, on the spot. So I can't, there's no, there's no way, and you never know. See, confidence to me is the, is, is, the, is the thing that actually drives all of us almost all the time. Trust and confidence. Trust in ourselves. And she had lost trust in herself. She'd lost confidence. And there's no way that she can be criticized. I, I saw somebody last night on TV kind of like, hmm, you know, she should have known this before she went over there. You never know. You never know. That. You never know when it's going to hit. And I got the impression, Todd, when we spoke a little bit, you're kind of the other guy. But before <laughs> well, you speak, I, go ahead. Before you speak, I want to say, let's just assume you're getting ready to go to Los Angeles. And you get on the plane and you find out that the pilot ain't feeling it. He's all of a sudden, and he's, he's got a mental the day. Yeah, he's gone mental on you today. Now, of course, you're upset that he's the pilot and all of a sudden he's having this breakdown. <clears throat> but at the end of the day, you're kind of... <clears throat> I'm thinking you're kind of glad he didn't horse it. Or if let's just say William Tell, you're the other part of the act. William Tell is still the the, the, the boyer. He's the guy that's still shooting arrows. You're the guy with the apple on your head. <laughs> William Tell comes up and says, Todd, 
I'm a little shaky today. I'm not feeling much are, you, are you saying too much are you, are you saying the show must go on, <laughs> no, William? No, no. The show must go on. I'm going to take your analogy, though, and say, listen, it's different if I know this before I get on the airplane, but if I'm halfway and I'm halfway and I'm flying over Kansas City and he decides to have a mental health day, <laughs> now you got to hang in there, big guy. When the tough, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. No, this is a very complex issue with Simone Biles. I will give you that, and taking nothing away from her and her personal decision, but but going back to your analogy in that particular year with the back problems that you had, and let's face it, for the best in the world of what you guys you guys were and did at your respective positions years ago and the training that it took to get there and the narcissism, right? You're there for the fans. You didn't want the fans down, the community down. We know what a big deal this was. Okay, she's got that same thing with all the adulation. Mm-hmm. She's the GOAT, right? So versus did your teammates, did you feel you would let your teammates down? I know you didn't care so much about the coaching staff and, and that part of it, but your teammates and the guys that were also dependent on you and you depended on them, did that come into play? I never got the feeling that they depended on me. I was just worried about the fans. I felt like the fans was... Well, I think that's both. Are you uh-huh. not into But that's a great point. That's a but, great I point. I mean, that's a good point, but I still think it's on both sides as far as the sport we played. Because it's a team concept. Yeah. And may, maybe I'm different. Maybe I've felt that way. If I couldn't perform or I was off, uh, would I step out? But also I would feel bad because then I'm putting them in another jeopardy because somebody's got to come in to replace myself. And then you're shuffling the whole lineup there at different people. So now everything's out of kilter because right. of one individual. It's exactly. For lack of a nail, the shoe right. is and lost. That, for lack is of a shoe. she the same way? Because she let down the USA. Well, that team. Yeah, and oh. I think that's the angle. Well, yeah. and this was a team competition that she, the, the individual is next week, which is still has not been decided if she's going to compete or not. Okay? So there, so there is that. Listen, I, I get it. If you don't, if you ain't got it, you ain't got it. And it, it just happened to show up on the world's biggest stage in her shining glory moment, which would be, no, listen, we got into the Alex Smith situation. I'll, I'll take a slight veer there, where Alex wanted to play no matter the cost and what we all thought. Yeah, and he it was, was, it was detri- And it was he detrimental was to the team. Somebody needed to say, hey, yeah. enough already. This actually is bad for the team. And but our it health. was good for the team. God bless you. Because and, of their PR situation. Well, you did get that. Yeah, that's what that was all about. So it's it's complex. I, I'm not mad at anybody. There's both sides of the coin, and uh, uh, yeah, it gets uh, lost in the politicization of well, this stuff, though. But I, I but I draw the line where you know if we're in the military and we got bullets flying over our head, that's a whole different story. Now then, now you can't go. You can't do that. You can't have a mental day. I can't because no, you can't it, go mental no. day. This is entertainment, folks. This is entertainment, and as far as I'm concerned. Take it for what it is. Let's not make more out of it than what she had. So what? The USA loses a gold medal. Seriously. Somebody tell me, do the Olympics, is this all about, and I know that's the way the world tries to work. I got to thinking about this, how important it is to the Chinese and all this because on the world stage. But really, if you got half a brain in your head, I would think you would go, it's sports for crying out. Is this telling me, you know, that this gonna that the world order is being actually fashioned right now in Tokyo based on what these athletes do out there? I'm going, that's insanity. This is entertainment, folks. Whatever you want to call it. It's right. sport. Sports. You're supposed to have fun. You're supposed to enjoy it. And when you're not enjoying it, you're not having fun. 
probably you're not doing very well. It's time to get the hell out of it. I mean, I can't see it any other way. But don't you think, John, this is where, and that's what I'm saying, not politicized, but it becomes a cultural event, and, and, and we're supposed to celebrate and worship, and now it's this new dawning, this new day. That's where the debates and the differences of opinions come in, that we're sitting in there going, you know, acting like... This is so wonderful and so awesome. She has every right to do it, and it and and that's that's fine. I'm not mad at the decision, but it's putting it up there because part of being a champion, and wait till we get into his story, is overcoming adversity. Okay, everybody would love to be the greatest in the world. But at she anything. has to overcome adversity that's, to get to where she's at at this that's point. That's exactly now, what I'm saying. It's yeah. a double-edged sword. At surely she struggled before in lack of confidence, oh, sure. lack of everything, and, and I, I still think, and, and your point, all that, and, and this, and looking at this, is that society is living through her. Right, and they so, want to win. And so, right, and, and now they're pushing the narrative of for all the little girls out there, don't be too hard on yourself, don't do this, and everybody. And this is where people start saying we're starting to get soft culturally and as a nation and other places, because we we tend to blow this stuff up because wow. we make these people larger than life Correct. and what it truly means. And, exactly, and, and that's the part that just frosts me a little bit. It's like no, let her do her thing. And, and the same thing with Naomi Osaka and 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 Osaki, what she and what she has done, you know, but don't make it bigger than it actually is, and right. we start well, getting kinda, into well, exactly. And this, you go back to uh, Charles Barkley. Didn't Charles Barkley say, "Hey, I am I, not a role model." Yeah, and I, I couldn't agree with him more. I, I never felt like myself I that agree way, with and that. I didn't Charles think I should. Charles is not a role model, and, 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 and I knew, and I knew in my heart I shouldn't be considered a role model either. So <laughs> many I didn't parents, ever come many out parents and agree every now and then <laughs> fall in that category. <laughs> but but uh, then, and to take this to another level too, though, you have to remember back, to answer, you know, to get back to what you were saying about, you know, where you come out of the lineup now, they have to put somebody else in there, and maybe they're not up to snuff, and all of a sudden right. it changes. The complexion and it's true but you also have to remember that this is a team sport made up of individuals and as an individual you have to make the decision between well if I step out of this is there some guy behind me the famous uh, you know uh, what's his name Lou Gehrig story uh, where Wally know, Pip Wally Pip was uh, I'm back. Ain't feeling it today. Might have hit it a little hard last night, boys. Lou goes, okay, I'll play. And that was like, Wally Pip, who? He's gone. So you get down to this, particularly in professional sports, your job's on the line, too. And so yep. you have, you know, you weigh you weigh this all out. But I remember early on in my career, of course, that maybe that was the point where I realized and early on in my career, which I didn't know when I had that conversation with my dad because I felt like, after my third, second year in the league, I went, shit, I can play this game as good as anybody, you know? And, and anybody's ever played it, so what do I have to prove to myself? I, at that point, I was done proving to myself. It was a fairly, fairly easy way to make a living, and yet I saw the, the, the hurt my parents would go through if I'd have walked away after my second year, and I thought, well, what the hell, they do pay pretty good, and, you know, I got nothing better to do. So, so, so I, I have to confess, when it comes to love of the game, when love of money is more like it, 
in my particular situation, but you know, don't hate me for that. I mean, we all got to have something to do, and hopefully, you find something that you know gave you as much free time as that did for me. But because of that, and realizing that you were working in an organization and for a corporation, meaning the NFL, that could care less about you, could care less about you, because there's so many people that want to do this, we can easily find somebody to replace you. You have to be smart, and you have to protect yourself. And I know, though, there's a, there's a certain there was a bunch of those guys on this football team when I first came down here that 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 were really. You know, are you? You know, we're gonna go today. I know I got a, I got a compound fracture in my left leg, and I've got a dislocated shoulder. But I'll be out there on the field, coach. You can count on me, coach. <laughs> and I just sit back in awe of guys like that, because I'm thinking, if you know what the game is, and when I say the game, not on the field but off the field, you kind of have to go. Really? I don't think so, because you work for yourself, and you make a contribution. And you have to be the arbiter of what's, what's in it for me, basically. And that's how a team sport really works. Ultimately, the head coach is the one who gets it all, puts it all together and reaps basically all the rewards. If he can convince... Kind of put all that together, what you talked about. It, practice. Somebody gets hurt. They go, all right, let's move it up 15 yards. He's broken legs over here. And then this guy's down here injured and (laughs) stuff, and it's you. That's that's what they care about you. you. keep moving. Don't anybody look over here at the compound fracture. Let's let's practice 15 yards further. And about 10 minutes after that, and you're up there practicing, you hear a gunshot. You know, that old movie, well, they shoot horses, well, don't they? Well, what a perfect segue, Riggo, into 1981. Let's yes. go back in time, 1981, and I'm going to set the stage for you here. Joe Gibbs' first year. What year, what number of year was this for you? I'd have been going into my, well, after my sabbatical, I was starting my 10th year. All right. and uh, So basically, I was being reborn. In 81, and somebody was just being born. A newborn cult over here. So so I'm going to take you through the draft that year. This is, and then there were 12 rounds of the draft. So your first round, uh, your first round pick for the Washington Redskins at number 20, Mark May, uh, guard out of Pittsburgh. Your third round pick, a guy named Russ Grimm, a guard out of Pittsburgh. Your fourth round pick, Tom Flick. Quarterback, who's now a uh, a motivational speaker. Oh, the Flickster. Your fifth round pick. Young buck named Dexter Manley, defensive end out of Okie State. I had to look at the same because number five in the fifth round also, Gary Sayer, a guard out of... I remember Gary. I, yeah. I, he was from Texas, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, Cameron? From, yeah, that's Texas. But I think he was from Texas. Well, no, I think Cameron's down in Texas. Yeah, I was going to say, I think Sounds he was... right. Uh, sixth round, Larry Kubin. Linebacker out of Penn State. Happy <laughs> do. <laughs> I know you guys got a story on that Nope. Uh... Eighth round, Charlie Brown, wide receiver, South Charlie. Carolina State, CB. Ninth round, Daryl Grant, a, look, a guard out of Rice, they listed him as. Tenth round, Phil Kessel, quarterback out yeah, of Northern Phil, Michigan. I couldn't remember his name. I, kept, uh, I mean, I could see his face, blonde yeah, headed blonde hair guy. Yeah. Tenth uh, round pick, Alan Kennedy, another offensive tackle out of Washington State. I got State. nothing on him. You might remember him just because he's yeah, tall. He's about my height. Eleventh uh, round pick Jerry Hill, wide receiver, North Alabama. I don't remember him? I don't either. Number twelve, your boy. Twelfth round pick, last pick for the Redskins. Ninth, Clint Didier, oh, tight end out of Portland State. Frog, Frogger. Yep, AK Frogger. 
And you know who's not drafted? No, no name I called out there. A guy named Joe Jacoby. Joe Jacoby, undrafted free agent. 40 years ago, and you had one, two, three, four, five linemen drafted, including Mark May was the, uh, wasn't he the Outland, Outland Trophy? Uh, yes. Outland. Yeah. So, and, and obviously, Russ at the number three pick. So you had some you had some made guys coming in with your veterans of. Uh... I didn't say I was the sharpest tool in the shed. <laughs> and not only that, though, we must interject at this point in the broadcast that Joe Jacoby, in the coach's mind, and that would be Gibbs, was a defensive tackle. <laughs> Correct. So the first time you meet with him, he's talking about playing defense. Oh yeah, I didn't say a word. Uh, just you know, sitting there. That's about, that'd have been like scared, if he called you twenty-one year old. If he had said Jim, I understand yeah. that you're, you know you're you're been playing defensive tackle down at Louisville and you're really doing good. <laughs> yes, you coach. You was not going to correct him no matter what he did. Well, that's true. I, I exactly. didn't. I wasn't going to. So, so he just rattles on, and I walked out of that room when I was done with him, and remember old Jerry Gabriel. Yes. Yeah, I walked over to him because he was assistant GM and signed the two-year contract. I didn't say I was the smartest, you know, but uh, you know when but, they had that five thousand dollar check waving in front of me and uh, and the contract, I thought eh, better than nothing right like now. So, so you find out that what he talked to Bethard, Gibbs talked to Bethard because your your other offensive lineman you had in camp was Bostic, Melvin Jones, yeah, uh, Ron Saul. And uh, Stark. George Stark. That was it. Well, so Freddie Dean, he wasn't on a. But did he come next year? No, Freddie should have been there. Yeah. Okay. So let's see. That would do those. I'm looking off of a starters list here. I don't. I got oh, the full okay. roster. But you guys, yeah. I think you had 18 linemen in camp. Yeah, that's what the that Gibbs, Gibbs right. yelled at Bugs. What's that? Gibbs went after, didn't go after him, but was very upset with him because coming in. Because remember, they didn't have the limits they have now, how many people could be on the roster. So they would bring 125 because right. the other guys were the bags. And that's <laughs> yes, what the they brought because we were six the, weeks in camp. Just like college, basically. Yeah. So that, and Buse got yelled at and said, you know, why'd you sign this other lineman, which was me? And Joe told the other Joe, and said, well, we'll bring him up for a couple of weeks, and then we'll let him go so he can catch on somewhere else. Talking this, about you. Yeah. Oh, so you don't think they ever had any intentions of you sticking well, around? Well, this with Coach Gibbs didn't talk to me afterwards. I mean, you know, a few years gone by. You know? uh, and this is said what their plan was because he was upset at Bukes for bringing in a guy who was not going to have a chance to make the team. Make the team and not get any practice time. Lo and behold, Mayday holds out. Mayday for, held out? Held out for 10 days. That was a good move. <laughs> How'd that work out? And so I got, you know, I got my opportunity to practice up at camp up at Carlisle. So that that ended it all. And when he got back, and you started at guard before that rookie year was over with, didn't you? Yeah, didn't you start rough, out at guard? Huh? The Chicago game. So well, where was Grimy then? Were you on the right side? No, Grimy got hurt. Remember, uh, he has knee. He had it scoped, and he came back the following week after that. Uh, okay, so that's and they how put me in in guard. But then after then, when he came back, did you go? They moved me back. I took my normal position there, standing at the end of the bench. <laughs> so who was the left tackle? Mayday. Mark May. Our, it was after the eighth Your game. entire rookie year, he was the left tackle? No. After the next game, after Russ came back, and they made the move and moved me the left tackle. 
halfway through that my rookie year. Now, how does that grab you? So the undrafted Outland Trophy, Outland Trophy winner, right? The first number round, round show pick, pony, being, first round show being pony. replaced by a lowly walk on. And even back then, you know that that looks bad on management, right? That looks bad on your, oh, your on your talent uh, evaluators, in which don't think that that doesn't those politics don't come into play. Oh, clearly, and because that's embarrassing. That costs people jobs when How when do you, you make when you make misses. Seattle felt. <laughs> When he, when after the second day of the draft, and then get drafted, you know, the phone's ringing off the hook now. Because every undrafted. team is trying to sign right. these free agents. And Washington always said they were the only one I talked to so yeah. that's all through that. Right. And I wanted to go up there, so they called, said they had a plane ticket. We're in the living room with a scout. There was a scout there from Seattle. He had a three-year contract, wanted me to sign and all right that. Right there on the spot. Yeah. So I, I get off the phone. I go back into the room, pack a bag. I said, well, I'll let you know when I get back. I said, Washington called. They got a ticket waiting for me at the airport. I'm leaving now to go catch that. And my brother, you know, we're getting ready to leave. The guy goes, well, no, just stay there. You're telling my brother. He goes, I'm leaving anyway. Just ca- catch a ride with me. So he takes me to the airport. <laughs> That's a story. <laughs> the Seattle Seahawks scout sent Joe to a Hall of Fame career. Right. And, and, <laughs> to his airplane on his first I mean, trip. the volume of players in 12 rounds of draft and, and, and oh, going yeah. through these names, of which, and that was a hell of a draft class, mm. though. The success was. of that, I mean, good. Charlie Brown and, and yeah. some of these role players here, the guys that ended up having very successful careers. So, so Jake, I got to ask you. So, the grizzled veteran, you know who he is. Your very first impressions, first time seeing him, meeting him, and being around El Rigo. What, what went on? What was mind? it? We were already up in camp. Yeah, you guys went in a week early. Right? Yeah, the rookies and all that got there early. So he makes his grand entrance. I don't think you made a grand entrance. Not then. really. There was other years you did. Yeah, well, that was after the thing. <laughs> Listen, you I was coming back. back. Hey, I basically had my tail between my legs. I mean, I knew what the score was. I.e. that I'd set out of here. I don't think people were overly pleased with me, right? Hey, what the hell are you doing? But it you know, came back to a, a team. A, you know, a Simone Biles. Well, it really on my was starting out all anew again because I've got the new head coach in. Nobody knew what Joe was going to do. Exactly. I mean, with Air, you know, Coriel and right. all that. And they all were suspecting the ball was going to be thrown. And it was. Yes. Quite a bit. First five weeks of the season. We okay, were, but when he went, was the first time you did see him and you did, you you know, oh, well, it's but kinda, I don't know if Joe would have necessarily known who the hell I was. Oh yeah, come on. Well, you know, we had TVs in Kentucky. <laughs> yeah, but the team hadn't accomplished a whole lot. I don't know. Maybe if you watched, you know, Washington. On yeah, but you got to remember the time you were playing there. Namath was still with the Jets, and he was uh, on TV a lot because remember they won the third. Super Bowl, right. so oh, yeah. they're well, going to market his name. You were America's was, original team. So, um, Who's that? The Namath-led New York Jets. And that, that, yeah, that's true. That well, Joe was the original you. team. We get the game of the week and the Jets at that mm-hmm. time because yeah. of what they did in the Super Bowl game of the week. And now, all of a sudden, I'm in a camp with John Riggins, who played with you know Joe Namath and the, the, what you have done up to that point. It's pretty impressive from this kid who played in front of 10,000 people at the college he played yeah, at. Yeah, I get that. So, you know, then all of a sudden, here we are sitting 40 years later talking about all the great memories and stuff we did together. Kind of yeah. neat. Yeah, yeah, that was, that. like I said, but for me, when I was coming back after a year off, it's just what Joe was saying about the, you know, Air Coriel, or you were saying, you know, that, and that's what it was. And, and I got to tell you, I, I was clearly 
out of my uh, element. First of all, I hadn't had pads on for 18 months or whatever it was, and like you know, running around all of a sudden, you put shoulder pads on, a helmet, and thigh pads, and hip, and all these pads, and going, that's weird. And then all of a sudden, you're taking on a completely new system that was unlike anything you'd ever been a part right. of, and some new techniques of blocking and stuff like that. And it was like, and I was, I was at the very end of the what do you call it roster. Wow. So yeah. you go from you go from basically George, George Allen and Pardee and what? and let's call them Neanderthal offenses because <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, my last year in 1979 that that lost down in Dallas with, you know, 2 minutes to go and all that stuff. Um, you know, I gained over 1000 yards that year, so you, you know, then you set out the next year. So that's in December, middle of December. So you don't play until not the following September, but the two Septembers later. So it's a, that, that's a nice long break for you. And like I said, and then you got to come back and play in a system that you're completely, you know, it was all this passing and all, just what you said, John. Yeah, but this. I think you went from a, a one-back to a two-back. Well, yeah, well, they, they kind of went two-back, and then they finally went well, to the, the one-back. Well, the two-back was aged. But the, it was a different kind, exactly, yeah. it was a different kind of two-back uh, uh, what do you call it, offense. So, yeah, I mean, it. Uh, like I said, I went to the end of the depth chart. I was I was like the third or fourth guy back there. All well, right. So, and I deserved it. Well, I mean, you got, I, and, and the fact that we forget, because I vividly remember, Joe Gibbs, nobody knew who he was in Don Coriel's shadow out there because no. information didn't travel the same, and right. you know, all you heard about was Eric Coriel. You never heard about this Joe Gibbs guy. He comes in. You guys get off to an 0-5 start. You've got the high-priced draft choices and your top two picks are offensive linemen. When did you know that this guy was good for and that he had the horsepower because you had been around the block playing with various linemen and various teams and what, 10 years? When did you know that he was good and this line had something special because obviously going to 0-5 and I guess it was Bugs or the Brain Trust came and said, you know what, forget this passing game. We gotta, we, you know, we gotta run the ball and get behind our horses here. Well, there's two different questions there. The offensive line probably, probably the second year in 1982. Well, actually, maybe towards the last half of that season, uh, for for Joe, uh, when they won the second Super Bowl. That's what I knew he was good for. Okay, okay, it's easy with a Super Bowl when you got John Riggins. But let's see what you do with that John Riggins. And he went, okay, I'll show you what I do. Okay, get a little Timmy Smith action. See, John? <laughs> he had Timmy Smith cabbage patching. He goes, I'll show El Riggo. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Let me win one more on top of that one just to get your mind right. Okay. And let's do it a third time with yeah. Ernest Biner and any yeah. other guy we want to put back there. Yeah, and, and a different quarterback just to show you. Hey. <laughs> oh, okay. I get it now. Hey, I'm almost from Missouri, right? I grew up in Kansas. Missouri is the show me state. <laughs> Boy, they don't miss me a lick. They don't miss me a lick. No, not in the least. In fact, I think in a lot of ways they're going, I think they're playing better now than they were before. I was holding them back. I didn't want to believe it, but it was true. Well, uh, it's glad to have Joe in town with us here. He's going to be checking in with us throughout the year mm-hmm. uh, as we kick off another NFL season coming up here. And, uh, guys, I, I think we'll close it out with a, with a story that this just crossed my desk yesterday, and, and I find this amazing. We've got a study, four findings from a systemic review about beer and exercise. So the 5 o'clock club, this is all going to add up. Really? <laughs> because they're showing how many Olympic athletes, and especially long-distance runners, first thing they do after a long race, they're drinking knocking beer. beer. They're knocking beer down. So There's I've, science behind this? Yeah, but I've got two PhDs Hit Hit from me. Old Dominion University. 
Uh, an old Dominion and, Brewer? And Do they not, work for the same outfit? <laughs> <laughs> Last name and it's Castleberry. not Taylor Heineke and, and they coming out. Of, this wasn't part of his thesis. Patrick Wilson is a Ph.D. and Jason Wynn, a Ph.D., Department of Human Movement Sciences at ODU. And they, uh, they did a uh, systemic review of beer effects on exercise performance, recovery, and adaptation. Here are the four key, tape, key takeaways. Athletes are much more likely than non-athletes to drink beer. Is that right? Okay, I got that box checked off. Numerous surveys suggest that athletes from the collegiate level to the elite level are more likely to drink beer than non-athletes. So there's something something to that. Now, beer isn't great for hydration after exercise. Um, It does lead to profusely sweating, leading to an average 2% reduction in body mass from water loss. Uh, Subjects, so they gave, they gave, uh, they did one, one exercise in which they gave them uh, as recovery, water, non-alcoholic beer, or 5% alcohol beer, or a sports drink. Uh, subjects given, given beer retained fluor, fewer fluids, <laughs> urinated more, and uh, had a worsened fluids balance a couple hours after the exercises. But a dropped with time. So not a, moderate drinking the night before a competition likely won't impair performance. <laughs> I know you guys can relate to that. We've already, El we Pres- already knew that. El Presidente. <laughs> Mandatory. Mandatory. I mean, for self-study. It, it was actually his performance enhancing they didn't know. That's a little asterisk. Alcohol. And well, number beer. four, regular drinking doesn't seem to hinder athletic gains over many weeks of exercises, especially amongst the more elite athletes. So you guys, once again, ahead of the curve. Maybe. I, You know, for whatever reason, I just like to, you know, I like beer. And and right now, in fact, yesterday, did all the bull lugging and all that stuff. I went inside and I had two ice-cold beers. I got to tell you. It's Nothing like better. It, it, oh, I, I, it's just I second that. I did. Now, in the old days, I wouldn't have stopped with two, obviously. I'd have drank another <laughs> ten. Easy. But I did stop with the two. But, yeah, I mean, and, that, and I look back, and, and that's true what they say. I think when I always thought, well, beer, it must hydrate you because basically I ran on beer. I mean, I would drink water during the game, obviously, because you didn't have a choice. They didn't have beer on the sideline. <laughs> Maybe that's the next iteration. You were always in the wrong cooler. Crazy leg Riggins. He's running the wrong way. (laughs) Would have been a possibility for sure. Hey, come on. The offense has got the ball. Come on. Leave. Put that beer down and get out. Riggo, run to the Budweiser sign over (laughs) there. Yeah, it would have been one of those. But, yeah, I don't remember. I mean, during I didn't need to drink water because I was full of beer between practice. You know, like I said, at practice and after practice, as soon as practice was officially over and I was out of the shower and in my street clothes, we were in the shed and we were drinking beer. Uh, we're going to get into happy some, ending. We're going to get into some good five o'clock stories throughout this upcoming football season. Here, football's mm-hmm. back in the summers. We got one more month, man, guys. It's wow. time's flying by. It's marching on, isn't it? Well, yes, it is. And uh, I say we enjoy it before they put face masks back on you. What do you say? Are, we, are, <laughs> are you with me, guys? All right, Rigo.